Welcome, everybody. It's time for another episode, a follow-up episode to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today. Look at the dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you found yourself at whatever stage you are in your life with questions about church, maybe even become a bit jaded to the whole subject of religion, you've come to the right place. Because today we're going to continue to explore, can you really just pick your own God? Proving once again, we don't tackle anything controversial. Our host, well, he's an honors philosophy graduate, as you know, ordained a Presbyterian minister and planted and grew three churches along the way. Taught at a prestigious university and also a megachurch. But now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who's stuck in that endless cycle. That reincarnation of the same question over and over again. Why? Why not bring him in and learn more? Dr. John Bash, welcome, sir. Oh, thank you, Paul. I am so looking forward to getting more time with our guests. Francis Bergula is uh, just an amazing guy that we, we've we just finished one show with, and we're going to get to do another because we barely scratched the surface. Francis, let me, let me see if I got it right. I think I heard in the first show that in India... We just, we really, we just talked about Hindus. We didn't talk about the Buddhist side of India, and there's a lot of Buddhists, right? Just, am I right on that one? Yes. Yes. Uh, or how about the how about the other Buddhist. ones that you never hear about? The ones I was always fascinated when I studied this back in college at the University of Michigan, Zoroastrians, the people who don't they yes. put their don't they put their dead out on a platform and let the birds peck away at them here? Or is that Am I am I wrong about That's that? That's true. They they don't bury their dead. They just toss their dead bodies out in the well so that the crows can pick up the body. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh, Paul, see, that's a danger, Paul, being in here. We get gross right to begin with. Exactly. Um, so <laughs> let, let's keep going with it, though. So, but so we we learned that there actually was kind of a strategic reason that in America we have this notion of Eastern religions really being spiritual and almost a step up from Christianity. There was a strategy that occurred, and, and it was effective. So a lot of the things we know as New Age and and uh, are just practices in meditation that seem really peaceful, when you get to the mountain, um, it's really not so smooth and pretty. There's a lot of cracks and there's a lot of caves that you might not want to go in. If you would just pick up, tell me a story for when, when you were growing up and you kind of realized you were you were different from all these people around you. Because like you grew what, up, you grew up in a Christian. Were you in? Were you in you, a specific caste? And didn't you grow up? You grew up in a Christian family, as you pointed out, just to point out from the last. I did. Week. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, I did. That's a great question because it doesn't matter what religious background you come from, your last name reveals something about your caste you are born in. So it's not something I can hide from. When you become a Christian, obviously you get out of this whole caste system. So you say, I don't belong to any of these castes. Whether you get out from the top or the bottom, once you become a Christian, you move out of the caste system and say, I don't belong to the caste system. But that doesn't matter. You say you don't belong to the caste system, but they still want to know whether to treat you high or low. 
So they want to figure out, and that is the reason why. Now, this is a fascinating story. Even in America, now, I, I, the reason I want to tell you this story is this is something that's ingrained in our life. It won't go away. It's not just here in India. I come to America, run into some Indian guy in Walmart or Costco, and guess what? The first few questions will be, um, hey, what part of you? Are you from India? No, they want to make sure I am from India because there is a chance if I'm from Pakistan, the conversation will cut right there. So <laughs> exactly. um, usually they say, are you from India? <laughs> so the question is, are you from India? And if I say yes, uh, it's very soon they just, well, okay, what state or what language? And then they want to know my, no, my name, the complete name. And the reason they want to know that complete name is because that reveals my cast, the background, the cast from which I came, that way I will know whether I should respect this person who I am talking to or he is somebody who is in, from a Are lower caste. Above me or below me? So All right, so, dr- so do we do a drum roll and find out what your cast is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can. In fact, my so there are four castes I mentioned. My grandparents came from the fourth caste and then once you became a Christian, obviously, you, you don't associate yourself with the fourth. Uh, but then there are people who come from the outcasts, the Dalits, and there are people who come from the Brahmins and become Christians. But I came from the fourth. My grandparents came from the fourth caste and then became Christians and followers of Christ. And, and what is, so the fourth caste, they're still the, the higher. The laborers, the agricultural oh, the laborers. laborers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. On the hierarchy, we're at the bottom, but we are not the outcasts. So there are still people who are underneath us who we can look down to. But most of them don't have doctorates like you do, right? Well, even if they do have a doctorate, that's not going to make a big difference because my last name will tell them where I come from. Even if you're rich and have a doctorate, you're still from that caste. You are still an outcast or a lower caste. Okay, let's let's keep going here. So so I'm still picturing, though, um, with where you are, and you're in central India, it's yeah. it's safe for you though to practice as a minister. You don't have to hide what you're doing the way you do in some countries. There is a kind of freedom of religion that's up for debate in India, isn't it? Yes. So it used to be pretty safe, maybe twenty, thirty years ago, uh, because for many years India was secular on paper and in practice. Uh, and they actually wanted that identity. But later on, as the years passed by uh, the whole militant Hinduism and just this uh, uh, notion of we should make sure that India is Hindu and get rid of all the Muslims, because in their mind, these Muslims were supposed to go to Pakistan when the separation happened. Mm-hmm. And so e- they didn't go there. So even though they are here, in fact, they were here for many years, but still they always suspect the Muslims in India because they think, well, in their heart, they still belong to Pakistan. So they don't, they don't want the Muslims to be here and they don't want the Christians or any other religious people. So it used to be safe for us to practice religion, uh, but it is just becoming more and more difficult to, if you're, if you're a non-Hindu, it is going to be difficult in the coming years. It's already becoming tough, but it's going to become more difficult in the coming years. So what does that Indian say to you when you he, he reveal your name, he quickly does the calculation in his head, above me, below me, whatever he is, now I know how to treat him. What does he say when you also say, oh, and by the way, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Muslim, 
I'm not Buddhist. I'm not a Zoroastrian or a Jain or a Sikh or any of these other groups. I am a Christian. The, there's only, what, 2% of the whole country that's a Christian. Yep. Uh, and that's, that's the funny thing, that it's only 2%. But they still, again, as soon as you say you're a Christian, they, they associate you with the British rule. Mm. And they say, hey, it's the British who brought Christianity to us. So it's the traitors. Again, this whole notion of... So they look at the Muslims and say, it's the Mughals who came to India and they ruled India, exploited India. Mm -hmm. So they look at the Muslims and say, you belong to those traitors. And they look at the Christians and say, you belong to these traitors. So they basically are connecting all the Christians to the British rule, all the Muslims to the Mughal rule. And they say, you are traitors. You don't belong here. You should not be even here. Because you're, so, you're with, associated so with the conquered, the conquerors. Yeah, right. Yeah, so so give me some stuff here because I have a show coming up, and it's entitled "White English and Privilege," <laughs> and I'm going to have a guest on. Oh here. my goodness, you're not going to yeah, go there. Oh yeah, geez. again, we're not going to be controversial at all. Um, and and this guest <laughs> has a great grandfather who was a knight of the realm for services to king and country, in they spent much of their life as a ruler in a region in India. And according to her, he was fondly uh, memorialized, even a statue um, to him. And she wants to go back and kind of find this place in India. And I'm thinking, well, you might get killed if it's anything like here. They may, they may have torn down that statue. Do you have something nasty to say to those colonial people? I mean, what's the view of those nasty colonialists? My suggestion to your friend is come soon before they take the statue down. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a chance that they will take the statue down soon. But, but there, there are a couple of ways you look into history. Obviously, there's a group of people who see that these people came, exploited us, abused us, hurt us, and left. But mm -hmm. if you actually look at the facts of the country, I, ju I just want to give you a couple of sentences. You know, 1757 is when the British first came to India, and it took them almost 100 years to even get into power because at that point, India was 15 different kingdoms. There were some small kingdoms. There were some big kingdoms. So I'm talking about 1750s. We were just many different kingdoms because we had different languages, practices, so it's the British who came, and one after the other, it, they, it took 100 years for them to conquer all of them. So 1858 is when they actually came into power. 1858, and they ruled us for close to 90 years. So now, now what happened to those, is when they... What happened, what happened to those kings and royal families? Did they get slaughtered, or what happened? No, not all of them. Got, most of them actually surrendered to the British, and actually they said, we will coexist with you, and we'll exist under your leadership. So few of them, when they resisted, obviously lost their lives and stuff, but most of them came into consensus and agreed to be under the British rule. So 1858 is when they actually took control of the entire nation. For 90 years, they ruled. Even though it is true that there are bad people, bad rulers, they exploited and bad things did happen. I'm not denying any of that. But the one good thing that came out of this, all these 15 different kingdoms, you know, the Bengals, the Marathis, the Sikhs, the Rajputs, the Mysores, the Nizams. We were different kingdoms. There was no way we would ever come together and coexist and live together. There was no common identity. Mm -hmm. We were different people, different kingdoms. It was the British who brought us together because we have a common language, common rule, and they brought us together, kept us together for 90 years and gave us a new identity called India. They are the ones who 
built schools and gave us education in India, even as of today. So as much as we don't like the British, I have to tell you, our government, our entire nation is together because we have documents, everything is written in English. In India, every official document is still in English. So as much as I don't like the British and the exploits they did, if it was not for them, we would not even be a single country today. So uh, that's my take to your friend. So tell her uh, she, she's definitely welcome to India and come and see the statue of her great grandfather. Well, I, I tell you, this is a really bad um, corresponding thing. But in America, uh, when we talk about our native American, American Indians, and now there's a movement to, you know, go back a big bunch of land is being given back to um, Indians and American Indians. And I wonder when people are going to do their history enough to kind of go back and realize what the lives were like of those people. In a sense, now they're being looked up to as these wonderful, peaceful, you know, hunters and gatherers. Um, in the same way, I'm sure it's kind of true in India, right? Uh, there's a, those kingdoms, they didn't all get along very well, did they? No. In fact, and that, this is why history is really helpful. Even if you have a different twist or interpretation to history, the facts are still facts. So I really hope that people will take some time to read history. I'm not justifying or I'm not uh, saying everything British did was great, but uh, before they came, we were different kingdoms fighting among ourselves, and uh, we, we were in our small kingdoms, in our small language groups, and it's the British who did bring us together. So, uh, yes, uh, we would have been still small kingdoms, still many small nations as of today, but not India. So your daughter is asking you the same kind of questions that I'm asking. Uh, she's seeing what's going on in the country and saying, hey, Dad, you know, what do you think of all this? And, and does she consider herself, um, you know, an American fully or how did, how did that conversation go when she wanted to know what you thought of all this racial controversy? Absolutely. Both my kids grew up in, in, in America. So they, they, they went there when they were really young. So all their education happened in America. They lived in America. So they, they think American. They are associated with uh, friends in America. So they, they see things differently. Uh, and I, since I come from the East, I have this privilege of seeing the world from both sides, whereas from their point of view, they see the world from one side. And they say, hey, this is this is what's happening in America. This is not right. That's not right. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I don't disagree with them. I just don't like the overreaction for every small thing. And I say, hey, just give it some context. Go back to history and look what happens in the rest of the world. So so a few days ago, because of social media, everything that's happening, there was a lot of reaction to everything that's happening. And my daughter and me were having a conversation. And she was saying, what is your reaction? And I kept saying, you know, it is so sad what has happened. I just need some time to mourn. I just need some time to just process. I just need some time to reflect because this is so, it's so much injustice, so much pain. So I was asking for time to reflect and mourn. And she's saying, no, your silence is killing. I just want you to say something. Just say, say yes or no. So you, either you're for it or against it. And this is where I had to tell her, hey, you know, if you really want to know what's in my heart, you just have to wait because I can say yes or no, but I'm going to hurt somebody. It's th my whole point is 
for you to get the truth, you have to give it some context, process it through history, look into the situation and make an appropriate response. Don't just react. So this is me and my daughter having this father-daughter conversation. She said, what do you think? You don't, you, you don't say anything on Facebook. You don't say anything. I said, I don't want to say anything. I just want to grieve. I just want to process. I want to reflect and make a proper response. So this is me, the guy from two worlds speaking, and my daughter from the one world speaking. So this is where... <laughs> All right, so you're sounding like such a nice, moderate man. And yet, if a person listened to the first podcast, you're saying to people all around you who have a bunch of different gods that they're wrong, that there aren't gods, there's only one God. How do you reconcile that kind of, I, I want to I get history, I want to kind of be moderate, but being a Christian in a land with a bunch of different gods, I bet they want to say to you, that's fine, that's your God. But you yeah. can't do that, can you? Yeah. In fact, they have no problem because Hinduism believes in multiple gods. They have no problem in accepting Jesus with hundred of their gods. They don't mind putting Jesus as a hundred and first god in their house. In most people's house, there are like multiple gods. And if you present Jesus, they'll say, "Hey, thanks for adding one other guy to my menu," and they'll just put Jesus there. They have no problem in accepting Jesus as a god. The problem is when you talk about the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the way, the truth, the life. And this is where they, can, they really get offended and they say, hey, 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 you can't do that because then you are rejecting all our gods. So this is where it just becomes very difficult for a Christian to present the gospel to a non-Christian or a Hindu in India. Uh, they, are, they are fine with accepting him. They're just not willing to accept him as the exclusive or the only way to God. And that, that is exclusive, Francis. It, it, in America, it took the form of the trick question for many years for any political candidate would be, do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? <laughs> and, uh -huh. and that was the trick question. Now, that happens to be at the essence and core of the definition of Christianity, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father but by me, right? It's the definition of it. And yet persons, their uh, candidates ask, oh, so you believe that Jesus is the only way, therefore you're a bigot. Yep. It, it, it got to be even worse in India, isn't it? It is. Uh, and in India, there is a very high price you should be willing to pay if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you just want to be a nominal Christian, shut your mouth and just not worry about sharing the gospel, probably nobody will bother you. But if you are a passionate follower of Christ who really want to share the love of Christ with people, uh, there is a very good chance you will be misunderstood, you will be mistreated or persecuted. And the chances are becoming bigger and bigger. The price you pay especially if you come from a non-Christian background, your entire family will abandon you. They'll say, hey, we have no relationship with you. Just leave us. If you want to follow Christ, there's a huge price many people pay to follow Christ here in India. Can you tell us a story of what that looks like? Put it into a human perspective. Tell us a story of a convert to Christianity in India. Absolutely. Great question, Paul. In fact, so as I mentioned, there are many Hindu families, whether they are practicing Hindus or not for them, because they are born into a caste and uh, their religious practices, if one of their family member leaves their family or their religion and becomes a follower of Christ, 
they have to make sure they disassociate themselves with him because now he left the caste system he left gods they believe and so basically if he still participates in a wedding if he still participates in a event in the family the rest of the relatives are pretty upset so i have a friend of mine he comes from a higher caste and this guy was convinced that jesus is the lord i'm mean, very very brilliant guy intelligent guy he gave, read a lot of books and finally came to the conclusion jesus is the true god and when he shared that with his family there was no second thought it was instant severance of relationship they said hey you have no choice if you want to follow jesus christ never again you are coming into this house i don't know you don't tell anybody you know me just change your last name go become whatever you want to become and this guy was on the streets for many days i'm talking about a guy who is in college like undergrad and literally had to come to some christian friends like us and uh, just live with some of us again now back in those days it was difficult for him to come to our house because he was from a high caste and we were all from the lower caste people and he would not normally come to our houses but he is kicked out from his family so he actually came and lived in one of some of our houses and actually lived with us for months ate with us now again every one of this is like no no for them he lived with us ate with us literally shared the faith and again grew in the lord and eventually uh, started serving the lord but he is one of those guys who paid the price a big price but that happens a lot more often than what we imagine so i'm going to ask the question john dash always asks why why would he do this that's a heavy price to pay you got to really believe in something to do that absolutely uh, and just like the first century christians following christ at least in countries like india and some of the muslim countries and you know this is not a casual cultural thing you do in most western countries you can be a very casual christian you can just be a namesake christian because you're born into a family and a cafeteria india, christian you pick and choose whatever you want yeah <laughs> that's so true <laughs> but but in countries like india pakistan in most of these muslim countries this is not just a cultural convenience or it's not a cool thing to do this is life and death and the only reason you do it mm-hmm. is because you're absolutely convinced that this is more important than just having a life here on earth this is this is I mean this is so much more meaningful for us to have this relationship with God and follow this God and live for this God and if necessary die for this God so this is absolutely conviction zero convenience in fact it is very inconvenient a huge price to pay but people are willing to pay so now it's church hurts remember we we talk I'm picturing now in these little churches in India there's a lot of people in there who've paid a huge price with their family they're really starting to associate their church as their family and in those little churches they have pastors who are seeing people who are already emotionally a little raw because they they've really paid the price and they're doing it they're expecting this church thing to be a little slice of heaven and here's a minister a pastor whatever and this guy is the recipient of all these people's expectations and if he starts letting them down and that's the people you deal with in your work you help ministers in churches 
in India and give them a, a, a place to be safe. Uh, this is standing stone. I, I don't talk about it. That's my job, too, in America. But I haven't talked about it here. Tell me about standing stone. What is it? What, what about India? Absolutely. Standing Stone is a ministry which basically gives an opportunity to come alongside a pastor and just walk with him in this journey of serving because they're constantly on the giving end. Our job is to just walk beside them and say, hey, I know you're constantly giving. I'm here just as a friend to support you and encourage you during those lonely moments, during those tough moments when you're struggling emotionally, financially, spiritually, family issues, and many other things. Now, this happens all over the world. But when it happens in India, it is even more difficult because, as I mentioned, some of these guys came from a non-Christian background. So they actually already severed all their relationship with their natural families. They can't go back to their dads, moms, brothers, sisters, they can't, they cannot join in any of their weddings, ceremonies, any of that. They have zero family. They used to have a family, but they abandoned them. So the church becomes their only family. But then the church really puts them on a pedestal. They put too much expectations on them. And when they fail to meet those needs or expectations, the church just hurts them. And uh, they fire them or they just they have to leave the church. And this is when they hurt so much more. In America, when a pastor is fired, I hope he at least has a few other places to go to kind of fall back on. Right. But in India, when a pastor loses his opportunity to serve, if he's fired, if he loses the opportunity to serve, he has nowhere to go because he left his natural family, joined this family, calling them as their family. Now he's totally alone. And this is where we come in and we say, hey, you know, we totally understand the pain and the hurt that causes, uh, that the church causes unconsciously or consciously sometimes. But this is ministry. We signed up knowing that we are working with imperfect people. So bring one of them to life for me. Tell me somebody's story who fell. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, by the way, this building you see behind me or in the radio, probably they can't see, but mm -hmm. uh, this is a retreat center we, we have. We have 10 rooms. We invite 10 couples each week. Most of these pastors, they are so poor in the sense financially, they cannot even afford to travel to my retreat center because they work among such rural places and villages that every week the offering they get is not in money. They get some eggs, they get some hmm. grains, they get some chicken. So this is the kind of places, villages or uh, they work in. They are exhausted and they are hurting but they have no place to go. So our retreat center, basically what I do is I raise the money and I invite them for a four-day retreat. So a few months ago, we had a pastor who showed up at the retreat center and we were talking about challenges we face in different places. And he gave me his story, comes from a different, he comes from a Muslim background. Now that is even rare. We have Hindus who become Christians, but Muslims becoming Christian is even rare. But here is a Muslim who became a Christian, not just a follower of Christ, he became a preacher of Christ. You can imagine how he is persecuted from the Muslim community very much, but not just the Muslim community. So here is a guy who is totally abandoned by the Muslim family. Muslims don't like him. And he started, he went to this small village, started serving as a pastor. And there is this Hindu militant group in that village. They warned him that we don't want you here. But he said, you know, I just feel that I should live here and I should share the good news of Christ. And they warned him twice. 
And after warning him twice, they actually took him aside when he went out to the village to preach on his way back. It was dark and they literally beat him up. I'm, I'm not saying about just warning and just, they literally beat him up so bad that he just fell there the whole night, came back the next morning to his family and they shared that, you know, this is what happened to me and the wife and the kids were very supportive of him. They said, dad, if it happens to all of us, that's fine. We are willing to pay the price. I mean, this is, this is the kind of commitment these guys have. Yeah, the I next could... week, this guy goes oh. back to the next week. This guy goes back to the same village. And this time they threaten him and say, if I see you here one more time, I'm going to go and burn your house and kill your wife. And this was a threat he received. And somehow he said, you know, I am just doing it because I love you guys. I'm not doing anything harmful. And, but then they didn't listen. In fact, they actually burnt his house. So the reason this wife and husband came to our retreat center was because two days before they came to our retreat center, their house was burnt. And the guy just unbuttons his shirt and shows me the fresh wounds on his back. And I just thought, well, I thought I was doing a big sacrifice, leaving the <laughs> comforts of Orange County and coming to India to serve Jesus Christ. When this guy showed his cars, I just cried and I said, well, that is what faith takes So. There's one story for you, uh, and there are many others who pay a big price for Christ here in India. I'll never forget it. Right. Yeah, Francis, that, um, I am so thankful um, just for you. I need to close here. We didn't even get to talk about Robbie Zacharias and a bunch of other things. We're going to have you back. But, um, <laughs> you know, I just need to close by saying this. Um, I don't know many Indians. As an American, I want to say, you know, like Indian Indians, not like American Indians. I cannot imagine how ignorant that must sound to people who make up 1.3 billion of the world's population. <laughs> if you need something to put that in perspective like I do, that's over three times the size of the United States. But wait, what race is Francis? I bet you don't know. In fact, I bet you're not sure how many races there are in the world. Your mind is saying five, right? Or is it four or, or seven? And I'm not going to tell you. And if you do know the answer right now, you're feeling insulted and you want to tell me. But do I mean race as a biological category or a sociological category? Which is it? Do I really mean ethnicity? Wait again. Name those races. What are they? Once again, I bet you can't name the major races let alone the corresponding ethnicities or the countries that they populate. But you feel strongly about this race dialogue going on in America, so much so that there's a good chance that your friendships are being affected. You're insulted by those who are taking a different view from you. You may, may think those other people are ignorant and backwards and bigoted, or they may be ill-informed or pushy or snobby. I have some friends who are considering cutting off friends and even posted on Facebook that if you have XYZ view, you can unfriend me. I don't even want to be around you. Really? Some of you aren't hearing a word of this because you're stuck on black, white, Indian, Asian, and you're counting on your fingers. What are you missing? We can all do the same exercise when it came to world religions. How many major world religions are there? I divert back to Francis. I don't know many Indians. I don't have many Indian friends. Francis is a new friend, 
And I suspect he's going to be one for life, and it's going to be good and deep, filled with humor and teasing and a mutual passion for the God we love, the one triune God who reveals himself in Holy Scripture. Francis is going to teach me more about Indians, the amazing diversity among these people, their land, their history, their food and cultures. I'll probably even pick up novels about India that I never would have considered before I met Francis. His skin has a different pigmentation than mine does. Of course I noticed it. I'm not blind. Do I care? Not really. And I bet you don't either. Why? Because it's Francis. You know his name now. You know some of his story, his mission, his values, his love of God and countries. Why do I know Francis? Because as a middle-aged man, he came to my country and he learned about my people and from my people. And when he met me, he smiled and he shook my hand. And I know Francis because he came here. I don't want to push the analogy too far, but there's also a big part that that's the story of the gospel the church has taught for 2,000 years. God made the trip. He came here to this earth in human flesh, and his name is Jesus. He cared, he loved, he taught, he died. The message, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. You want one of those today? Check out a church, you can tell you more about it. The real estate up there in heaven sure isn't cheap, but the price has already been paid, and that is what we mean by and. And that is worth a thought. For Church Hurts AM, this is John Bash. Love somebody today and enjoy God, won't you? And with that, we bring another chapter to a close. With as much to think about as always, if you want to continue the thoughts, continue to share your thoughts, and continue the conversation, you can reach Dr. Francis Bergala, our guest today. Just go to standingstoneministry.org and look him up. And while you're there, look up our host, Dr. John Bash. He's also a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders in need of some help themselves. We'd like to hear your story. So come visit us at churchhurtsand.org, where there's always a place for you. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio. Dot net.